Welcome to the Take Us to the Game podcast, a light-hearted and reverent look at the world of sport. My name is Richard Baker and I'm joined this week by Ollie Scully. Hey Ollie. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right. I've, uh, I think I've got over the hangover from, uh, <laughs> from last night. We're recording this on Thursday the 8th of July. It is the day after England got past Denmark. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, um, they sort of, you know, got over that hoodoo of the of the semi-final. That's yeah. So, well, the first semi-final in, in three years. Um, but there's only been five, I think, since uh, in in England's history, and the first time they've made it back to a final since, of course, 1966, which was long before I was born. I should point out, and lots of people have, that we're referring to the men's team. Mm. The, the women's team did make the Euro final in. 2009 most recently and I think 84 as well um and of course played uh, uh, reached the world cup semi-final both the last world cup so so talking about the men's team starting at the events at Wembley last night what, what did you make of the game well I sort of felt I felt strangely relaxed throughout it um and I've been trying to sort of understand why given the given the stakes given England's record at this this stage of all major competitions and maybe it's some of that just sort of sort of stuck around in my mindset. I was thinking, well, you know, we'll probably go out because it's a semi-final, so don't <laughs> don't invest, don't over-invest emotionally in it. Um, but but in a, in a strange way, I kind of just always just felt as if we we were going to win this time. And I, do, I guess that just comes down to the the way that Southgate has sort of just given a sense of confidence around the whole England setup, which has just not sort of existed before. I don't know what you felt. Did you, were you sort of hiding behind the sofa or were you just able to just watch it as a game of football? No, I wasn't, I wasn't hiding behind the sofa. Um, I was, I was like you, I was, I was essentially quietly confident because I felt that when I looked at the two teams on paper, England had a superior 11 to Denmark. And that I thought that if, both teams sort of play to their ability that England would win, which I think is more or less what, what happened in the end. I mean, obviously there were nervous moments when Denmark took the lead, but the strange thing there was that England sort of woke up for five minutes after that happened and basically sliced uh, Denmark open twice in three minutes. You know, nobody remembers it now, but Sterling misses from point blank. You know, Kasper Schmeichel saves it, but you know, he knew nothing about it. And then, and, of course, the goal comes. Sorry. And, and well, and if if that if events you know later in the evening had gone differently, then um, then that would that would have been the big chance and the moment that you know we'd have been all crying into our cornflakes the next morning, wouldn't it? You know, because it was a great chance. And um, but yeah, then we do we kind of almost do exactly the same a couple of minutes later. Yeah. And that's the that's the thing that that sort of surprised me was that as soon as we needed a goal. We attacked, we created chances and then scored. And then we went back to sort of being a bit plodding in midfield again, which I, I know is sort of, what's the word they use now? It's excellent game management and they're in control and all the rest, which is just code for being a bit boring, really. Well, I, but I would have I would have sort of, I would have taken a version of being in control, which was which was 3-1 up. <laughs> no, 4-1 up. You know, that, that would have been in control as well in my books. But yeah, you're right. We, you know, it did feel as if they just reverted, reverted back to you know to the way they'd been playing 
playing before they got the goal and just sort of sat back again. Um, and then there were a few periods where where Denmark just, you know, had good spells on the ball, and you you kind of felt as if you know England were just let you know almost drawing them onto onto their back four a bit. And I don't know whether that was part of the plan or whether you know it's just one of those things that you know Denmark a decent team and you know they're going to have a spell or two. Well, this is where we're sort of getting out of our depth, even though we made it to the we made it to the semi final last time round. And I think one of the interesting things in 2018 was that England were not good at keeping the ball even three years ago. And the sixth game into a tournament hadn't really rotated the squad all that much. And their legs went against Croatia, even though they had the lead, led at halftime. I can't remember when Croatia equalised, maybe it was midway through the second half. But but England's legs were going and Mm. Croatia were just dominating the game. And almost the opposite happened last night in that it, it was Denmark who looked gassed and in the second half, England just looked stronger and stronger. And I, I think Denmark made four subs in the second half and England mm-hmm. had only made one, yet England still looked much fresher. And I felt that as it got into sort of the last 15, 20 minutes, Yeah, I mean, the last last 10 minutes, they were so fresh, it felt like they had an extra man on the pitch. Because <laughs> <laughs> turned out they did. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, I know, I know what you mean. And there's, there's, you know, guys that sort of played, you know, sort of the, the full game and the extra times, you know, were, were still charging around and seemed to have, you know, a couple of yards of pace on everybody else. You know, Carl Walker still bombing around, even though he'd, you know, played 120 minutes and you know, I guess played, played most of the tournament as well, hasn't he, Walker? Did he miss a couple? Still? I was. They've rotated a bit. But... You no, know, they've done a reasonable job of rotating it this time around, and I think they had the advantage that with the game as good as one after an hour against Ukraine, they could they could take the foot off the gas a little bit mm. there as well. I, Carl Walker reminds me of every every so often as like a, a Russian bomber flies too close to UK airspace, and they'll uh, they'll scramble a couple of fighter jets just to uh, go and intercept it. I think that's what Carl Walker is. Any time like, the ball goes over the top, but anybody gets too close to the England goal, he just comes <laughs> speeding in to uh, clear up any danger. Yeah, I mean, he's oh, you've seen a lot of him you know, at, at Spurs. And um, some players you kind of think, well, he's just got, a, you know, could go on and on forever because he's got great sort of natural positioning and kind of never looks out of position, never sort of has to break sweat, never put in a sprint. Um, Carl Walker, not one of those players. <laughs> Carl Walker, always, always herring around. It's like the anti-Chiellini. Yeah. <laughs> Chiellini basically just sort of occupies like 15 square yards around the Italian penalty box. But uh... Yeah, he sort of reminds me as like a sort of an old man who's sort of very, um, very sort of fastidious about his garden and just sort of patrols <laughs> its perimeter around some sort of white picket fence that he's set up on, just on the edge case, of the box. Just in case any local youths have... Comes to try and steal his gnomes or something. Exactly. He's sort of got secutors in one hand and a, you know, <laughs> and an eagle eye, you know, for any any miscreants. In that case, is, is Benucci his neighbour of 50 years in that case? The one he sort of comes out and complains about the weather to while he's attending his <laughs> his lawn. Yeah, sort of both just be sort of propped up on you know on either side of their, their you know, well manicured fence. <laughs> <laughs> discuss uh, discuss the goings on just down there on the opposite side of the street to these new neighbours they don't much don't much, take much of a shine to yeah uh, maybe that's what they'll retire uh, to and I, and I think we, we we were sort of messaging each other when it got to 90 minutes and I think I was saying that you know, now's the time to change it up a bit and 
bring Foden or Sancho on and he did bring and I said Henderson as well which I, I know you didn't agree with because you are, your views on Jordan Henderson are well documented on this <laughs> podcast um, but I thought Foden gave them a bit of a spark when he came on I thought he played well in, in, in extra time and we'll come on to it in a minute but I I hindsight is 2020 I feel like even if England hadn't got the penalty they still probably would have scored extra time such was their dominance well, it it felt like we were on top in terms of sort of possession and just just you know the, the amount of miles in the tank left you know in the, in the whole squad really at that point. So you you kind of feel that there would probably have been other chances, uh, you know, that, that England would you know would have would have gone on to create more chances if they needed to. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we refer to it as the penalty. I mean, <laughs> a penalty was given. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm less convinced that a penalty was necessarily conceded. I think one of the strange things is that when VAR came in, a lot of people were quite anti it originally because they didn't like the disruption to the flow of the game. And also the official them didn't seem to quite understand how to use it, whether it was there to overturn serious errors or whether it was there to sort of reanalyze each decision. And maybe in the Premier League, we got very used, to, at least in the first half of last season, with almost every decision being reanalyzed and quite a lot of decisions being overturned. Whereas there's been a definite directive at this Euros to really try and support the on-field decisions as much as possible. Even saying all that, I was incredibly surprised <laughs> that it was not overturned. And if I was Danish, I would be pretty furious that it was it was it was given. Yeah. But I would say, on the other hand, if you're going to be consistent, I don't think that the free kick that led to their goal was a free kick either. And I think that in the first half, there was an incident where, I think it was either late in the first half, maybe it was early in the second half, where Kane sort of just nips into the box and seems to get there first and then gets caught. And I, I mean, thought that was much more of a penalty than the one we actually got. Yeah, I mean, that to, it, to me, that, that, that Kane one looked more, looked more like a pen than, than the one that was given. Um, but not, necess- it, not necessarily in real time. So I th- it felt like in real time, it looks like Kane goes down a bit easily. And then when you watch it back, actually it looks like the defender is kind of you know, is, is tangled with Kane rather than the other way around, at which point, you know, he's kind of taken his legs out from behind him. That's a, that's a pen. <laughs> Whereas with the, with the Sterling one, it was almost the opposite. Um, you know, sort of Sterling nips between two players you know, who both are sort of, who are both stretching and Sterling goes down. So when you kind of watch that in real time and at sort of full speed, it, it kind of has all, it seems to tick all the boxes <laughs> yeah. looking like a penalty. Um, but then when you slowed it down, it wasn't really clear whether there was actually, actually any contact at all. And if there was, then it must have been, you know, so light that did it really bring him down? You know, or was he, was he just going down because of the body shapes of the guys around him? So I think we I think we've both we've both watched a lot of football over the years. We're not naive about how the modern game works, and and given the sort of out the outsized reward compared to the risk of going down easily, it, it makes sense for attacking players to do so. And and Raheem Sterling very good at it. Now I, I don't agree with sort of the labelling as a as a diver because. I think it's a skill in the modern game to, to win penalties. I think on this particular occasion, he was anticipating a contact that didn't come. And if it did come, was very, very light. So 
yeah, and you know, let's not, you know, let let's not sort of trash Sterling. He's he's picked at the ball and he's run at two players and has burst into the box. Right, that's that's what you want your attacking players to be doing. You're right, though. You know, there's a there's another skill which is then trying to draw fouls and win penalties. And I think he's sort of done everything that he was sort of was trying to do in that sense. Um, other than possibly get you know draw more contact yeah. <laughs> to make it a stonewall penalty. Um, now Harry Kane and uh, and Casper Schmeichel had previous from the last game of the season, hadn't they? I think when Kane scored, Kane scored two or three in the last game of the season, I think, and Schmeichel made a couple of errors as, as Leicester missed out on the Champions League, and uh, Schmeichel very nearly <laughs> had his revenge, but yeah, but not quite in the end. But the best thing I, mean, I saw about it was basically he dived, he, he went too early because it was such a bad penalty that he'd almost dived past it. So he had nowhere to, do, to push it other than to push it back into the middle of the goal. You know, whereas if, if, if he was later on it, his arms still would have been in a position where he could have pushed it away from the goal. Yeah, and he was almost going so slowly that he had time to sort of lie down and think, oh, I might as well catch this. And then he just <laughs> didn't and fumbled it. So that was sort of a sitter that flies into the slips and then just sort of gets juggled round. Yeah. So yeah, if you just if you you know you palmed it out, then it's um, then it's one all. And I guess you know, we will never know whether England would have would have created another you know clear chance, would have uh, would have gone on to win the game in in extra time, or whether we'd have been, had a had a lottery of shootouts. But it would have been interesting if Kane had had to take another one yeah, <laughs> you know, five yeah. minutes later. I think. I think but yeah. the the second half, of, I mean, the second half of extra time was joyful for me for. For three reasons, I'd say. Firstly, was that I think by that point Denmark had gone down to ten men because they used all their subs and were, were completely spent. Uh, there were there was no chance they were coming back at that point. So that was enjoyment number one. We were going to win the game. The second one was that you know, we really got to enjoy sort of that 15 minutes of we're going to a final. You know, the crowd was you know, bouncing. You know, the atmosphere sounded incredible. Uh, and the third thing was knowing that I could watch the final on BBC and not have to listen to. <laughs> ITV <laughs> for another two years at least. Um, that brought joy to my heart because the commentary was just so awful. It, it was. It was. It, it was. I mean, you're just trying too hard to carve out some sort of, you know, some Wilson home moment to, yeah, you know, to was, go into it? the history books. It was like, just, just talk about the football, mate. <laughs> yeah, it obviously sort of been up the night before writing all these sort of you know uh, pre-planned right. ad libs yeah as you put it you put it brilliantly there he was trying he was trying to get a waltham uh waltham home moment in the yeah. manager and i think you, you you almost got the impression that he tried a couple and realized that they weren't it he hadn't landed them so he's, he's gonna keep going and get a few more in as if in the highlights reel it would yeah it wasn't getting any change from lee dixon out of <laughs> I think I mentioned it before when I was talking to uh, to Tom a few weeks ago about uh, the fact that they have Roy Keane as a pundit, which is such a great dose of realism in amongst all the euphoria <laughs> that's going on. <laughs> to have just Roy sat there with a scorn, scornful look on his face. Well, I think one of the reasons he's so grumpy is that they don't even offer him a seat <laughs> to stand <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah, you can't, you can't stand up in British football grounds unless you're a pundit for ITV. That's the one exception. Yeah, is this safe standing? Standing? Is this the yeah. test? <laughs> Put a safety rail around the around the studio. 
So I'm going to ask you a strange question now. Uh, does it matter if they win on Sunday? Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. Because, you know, we don't want to start a new hoodoo. <laughs> like semi-finals <laughs> have, have been a hoodoo for our entire lifetime. Um, uh, we don't want to start a new hoodoo, which is losing finals. <laughs> you know, because that's, you know, I've watched... I suppose I've watched Tottenham lose a Champions League final recently. That wasn't great. <laughs> I didn't feel as if, you know, it was a pin- as a pinnacle of achievement, which, you know, it's looking highly likely it was a pinnacle of Tottenham's achievement in recent times. Um, you know, the, let me put it this way. The we made it to the Champions League final T-shirts were not doing a roaring trade <laughs> in the Tottenham club shop. Um, I don't think any, you know, when we finally get to go back to the ground, you know, none of the local uh, pubs are going to have those T-shirts commemorating the appearance in the final pinned up behind the bar. You know, you now you've made it to the final, you want to win it. Well, I've, I've had that experience recently of losing the Champions League final, at least in, in my case, it was in a four-fifths empty stadium in Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> really feel like this showpiece occasion that perhaps the Champions League final is. Um, the reason why I ask it is uh, obviously it matters. Obviously it matters whether we win or not. But I think that if England lose, then it will still be regarded as a fantastic tournament. And I think a lot of the legacy of what this current squad have done, I think Southgate's legacy will be intact, I think, mm. regardless of the outcome. Because it's very... So when we started talking about doing a doing a podcast and doing a website you know it started a discussion we had once where we were talking about how sport starts at the end point and then we work backwards in terms of a narrative so we say England are in the semi-final why has that happened and then we we allocate each of the decisions along the line and say England in the semi-final because Southgate yeah. did this at this point etc no one looks back and says England might well not be because Tony um because um and Muller missed an absolute sitter that he scores 99 times out of 100, and that's then extra time and penalties, and England lose to Germany in that case. You know, it's a toss of a coin that England go out. So I guess what I'm what I'm saying is go back to those early group stages, and it could have it could have all been very different, right? Yeah, it it, it could. I guess you know, there's no. There's no way that the tournament now gets, you know, gets considered, you know, kind of a, a failure from an England point of view. You know, Southgate's, you know, sort of stock, you know, has gone, you know, it's kind of gone to, to new levels, I think. And, you know, you know, he's made decisions that I think, you know, have not necessarily been what the press have been clamouring for, possibly not what, you know, we've been clamouring for. I think probably not what I was clamouring for on this podcast a couple of, couple of sessions ago where I said I wanted to, you know, basically, you know, ditch the ditch the double pivot and get all the attacking players on the pitch, you know, and play with total freedom, you know, sort of trying to out Brazil, Brazil, you know, let's play like it's 1970. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of done it all his, his own way and he's got to the final. So that, you know, that is a, you know, that's a successful run for him. I guess um, interesting one is probably how the tournament is seen outside of, outside of England, because if England win it at home, does the rest of Europe just sort of think, well, it was a bit of a Mickey Mouse version of the Euros. Where was it being hosted? It was kind of everywhere. 
England seemed to get all of their games at home and then got a few more because of COVID. And lo and behold, because they're playing at home, they go on and win it. Yeah, Let's just stick an asterisk next to that one and move on. You know, I don't, I'd, I'd be interested to know what everyone else across the continent is thinking. I, I, I think England have become the de facto home nation. And you could point at 2016 when France lost in the final, but you know, they were heavy favourites to beat Portugal. So they got to the final in their home tournament. France 98 in the World Cup, you know, they won it. There's a strong tradition of host nations mm. doing well in their own tournaments. So almost sort of by by the back door, this has become a home tournament for England. I don't think it was always planned that way that they would play six of the seven games at Wembley, but just because of the the pandemic and logistics, it, it's turned out that way. So I, I I don't think there's an asterisk by it, but I think the chances of England hosting a Euros or even a World Cup for the next sort of 20 years are probably diminished because people say, well, you basically had a tournament. Yeah, you just had it. Yeah. yeah. Which is a bit, in some ways a bit annoying because <laughs> I would have gone and bought a load of tickets and watched a load of these games, but somehow it sort of it sort of passed me by that this was really happening as a home home tournament. But literally it's only been England, right? So you couldn't go to yeah. some of the other stadiums and watch all the other games. They've been pl- taking place in Baku or St. Petersburg. Yeah. yeah, it's um I don't know, it's the whole it it's been it's been an odd tournament and I I don't know whether it's the future model. I don't think it's ever really intended to be. I think it was it was wasn't it put together as a sort of anniversary of the of the founding of UEFA that they were gonna share it around the continent. You know, I no, I'm not I'm not sure, and I've said before on the podcast that I, I don't really like it. I like it in one country that I can go to. I mean, one thing that has started to annoy people, I know we've we've got friends who have talked about this, that um, there are there are people, prominent politicians, prime minister, home secretary, etc., people who only a few weeks ago were fairly you know, equivocal about taking the knee and players being booed for that gesture, now sort of getting photographed at the stadium wearing England kits and the rest and sort of trying to get on that populism bandwagon. Does it work? Are the public smarter than that? Um, well, I think I think some sections of the public are smarter than that, but I don't like to sort of um, put too much stock in the smartness of the sections of the public that want to boo their own team taking the knee so um yes and no would be my answer to that um but i guess other comment on this i suppose is that i think both of us have probably been in a situation where we've had we've had to go straight from the office to a game and i don't know if you've ever done that thinking that i know what i'll do is i'll i'll go in my shirt and tie and then i'll pull an ill-fitting football <laughs> over the top of my shirt and tie keeping my tie on i mean there's possibly you know if you were a, you know, a, a figure in the public eye you perhaps don't want to um take off your um your shirt so i could possibly see why you might keep your shirt on but you tie i don't think a picture of somebody taking their tie off is going to be a tabloid picture but a picture of somebody wearing a football shirt over a tie is an absolutely ludicrous look um, well like uh, should well, not be condoned or or voted for i'll say <laughs> i do like to do that i like to add a couple of extras though i like to leave the tags on my shirt and i like to put i like to put my own name on the back 
because I'm a, I'm a massive narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> I don't just put my surname on the back. I like to put my first name on the back. <laughs> that is, can you? I don't think um, I don't think um, club shops have like a a little little ballot box effect box as well <laughs> instead of a number. But maybe they're missing out. Maybe they should do. It's fairly uh, yes, fairly cynical. I think. I think you're right. You'd like to think that people would be smarter than seeing through populists, but unfortunately, world history has demonstrated that populism seems seems to do all right. Um, I I like to any sort of vaguely, vaguely moderate um, American. (laughs) They'll they'll offer you a counterpoint, I think. I think this is a political group of young men in a way that I don't think squads of yesteryear have been i think they're they're very well led in terms of you know, we, we can gripe about tactics and team selection but i think no no one would would complain about how they're how they're led you know, culturally as a team you know by southgate and you know, the way he goes about his business and he's very supportive of like, the various stands they, they've taken so you know look through look through the tournament obviously continuing to take the knee um supporting you know lgbtq supporters on social media you know harry kane wore the the rainbow armband um that mm. was an agreement between england and germany germany would take the knee if, if kane wore, wore the rainbow armband which he was happy to do and then obviously it's well documented sort of what, what marcus rashford has done the last season and also there's, there's other players who are quite involved in that kind of thing as well you know sterling does a lot of work off the pitch mm. and I, I think because we know where they stand on so many of these issues and we know where a lot of the the politicians who are trying to get on top of them have stood on these issues. I think that it's harder for the politicians to impose sort of their their ideology on the team. Well, I think I think what you get from what you get from Southgate is a real sense of authenticity in what he says and what he you know the way he acts. And there's kind of there's a there's a real consistency in you know, that you know if he sort of said you know. So before the tournament that he's kind of happy, you know, for, you know, wants to almost encourage his players to, you know, to kind of have a, a view of the the world and the community that they kind of live in and the, you know, the, you know, the, yeah, and respect kind of the privileged position that they have as well-paid footballers, you know, but, you know, be able to then contribute to kind of the, um, you know, to the, the wider, wider community. He can't then sort of go into a tournament and say, well, I want you to sort of abandon that. Um, because we want to just focus on the football. But it's kind of, it feels like historically, England managers would have just much preferred to just say at the start of a tournament, oh, we're just going to let the football do the talking. It's just about football yeah. now. That's all we're focused on. You know, at the start, he, you know, he had that, that open letter, which was very much, you know, backed his players as as sort of individuals and human beings to say, well, no, you, you have a conscience. You have causes that you've wanted to support. That doesn't stop because we've now got more football, you know, spotlight on us. Um, it just gives you an even greater platform. And um, and so I think for that, he's got to be applauded. And, you know, far, he's been consistent. And then in my, from, from my mind, he's therefore more, far more authentic than, you know, um, a jolly-come-lately politician that, you know, senses a moment and wants to jump on a bandwagon. I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think authenticity is the right word. It's interesting to hear him talk about his own experiences 
I mean, everyone knows the famous one of you know, missing in 96, what happened afterwards, but, but various experiences through his playing career. So one thing that he talks about is you know, in 96, he was sort of in the starting 11, but in later tournaments, I think it was, I think it was either Euro 2000, he went and he was a squad member and he didn't, he didn't get a minute. So he's seen it at both ends, you know, the, the kind of the, the buzz of being in the team playing in every game, but also the, the kind of the, the, the completely opposite to that of, of being there, but, but not playing. So I think that means that he, he's very um, sensitive to all 26 of the players because he can empathise with them. And I think as a public speaker, it's, it's incredibly refreshing to hear somebody who authentically talks about their own past experiences and their own past failures and what they've then learned and how that's then you know, put them in a position to succeed based on you know, previous failure, which is something you so rarely hear in public life. Yeah, it's true. I um, I think it's it, it's something I've noticed in the in the punditry as well, to be honest. And um, there's for the most part, um, you know, you'll have the panel on either BBC or on ITV. The the players that are involved, you get the general sense that they would probably have regarded themselves as being sort of the sort of the preeminent player in their position in their <laughs> era, right? So, you know, the other day you had. Uh, the BBC lineup was um, Lineker, Shearer, Lampard, and Ferdinand, and you yeah. kind of got the impression that all of them sort of thought, well, you know, we were we were the best <laughs> of our crop, and, and they were to be, and fair. they and they probably and they probably were, but it what it meant was that all there was a slight undertone of well sort of I wish this had been me in this current <laughs> squad because then I might have won something <laughs> at this level. And you know, however much they sort of, you know, wanted, you know, the, the England team to do well, you know, I guess you don't get to be a professional footballer without being kind of a little bit selfish and, yeah, and arrogant. Especially, because, if you're, especially if you're a striker. Especially yeah. if you're a striker. But even if, you know, even if you're you know even if you're a centre back, you've got to put in a lot of hard yards you know, to to really focus on making yourself a great footballer to, you know, to, you know, to play at any kind of standard, right? You know, that doesn't happen just by pure natural ability. You've got to work really hard. So, you know, in that, there must come some sense of, you know, sort of drive and focus, you know, and and sort of sense of self. And then it comes off the back of that sense of self-importance. So players that have, that have probably, by their own admission, not been that sort of preeminent, Mid, you know, midfielder. So, I don't think anyone, including Jermaine Genus, would have said he was the, the you know, the golden boy of his generation and the, no. uh, the first pick on, on possibly on any team sheet, you know. But somebody that kind of had a you know had a decent professional career and got a few caps seems to be able to talk about the game in a more balanced way. Yeah, rather than rather good. than just comparing, you know, himself. What, what everyone else seems to want to say, well, I would have done this yeah. if a player makes a mistake, and um, almost sort of say, well, that was quite good if they do something good. And I think you know, Genus is much more prepared to let go of his own, you know, using himself as such a you know, higher benchmark. You say that, but I, every time I listen to a uh, 
Danny, Mur uh, Danny Murphy as a summariser. I do have to check Wikipedia to see how many Ballon d'Ors he won. Whenever <laughs> 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 there was a player who's got better since he retired, yeah, it's, uh, maybe it's Danny Murphy. But you're right, Jermaine Giedis is a good pundit. I think that's that's that thing of uh, the uh, this cast of um, superstar players. It's interesting to hear their views, but maybe they can't quite talk about the game in, in the most interesting way because it they were the best at it, or it came so naturally to them. Yeah, you you know, in a in a in a game, not everyone is performing at the top of their game all the time, right? And you know, it's quite rare that you know, sort of a great player sort of single-handedly, you know, drags a team you know through a game and certainly not a tournament. You know, so it's about you know, I think and probably is the way that you know this. You know, the success of this current crop of England players is uh, is sort of showing. It's about making sure that almost the team is playing at a level where it's sort of more than the more than the sum of its parts, and that those that are playing well are are sort of bringing bringing more to the side than just their sort of own position. If that makes sense, I'm not describing this yeah. so well, but I think no, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I understand. Yeah. The, the, you, you, you're bringing more than just your own game. You're bringing what you what you contribute to the group as well. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's it. And it, it feels like it feels like that is that's what Southgate has managed to achieve with this with this group yeah. of players. You know, so you know. So to 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 bring it together, I mean, we're we're three days away. Um, it's going to be Wembley Sunday night. What what to your? I'll ask you. What's your prediction? Prediction seemed a bit odd. How do you think the game will develop? What type of game will it be? They don't necessarily give me a score, but like, what, what what type of game will it be? I mean, the the easy thing to say, I suppose, is that, oh, it's going to be really tight and cagey, and that's just because it's Italy. But I don't I wonder if that just like is that just a lazy sort of footballing stereotype. I think it is. Yeah, I don't think they play that way. I think you know, we, no. if it's cagey, it's because of us. Yeah, <laughs> I I kind of I. I wonder whether there might actually be an early goal, and I'm now trying to think who I think it's going to be for. <laughs> Maybe it'll be an early goal for Italy, and then England will still win in normal time. That would be a good game. <laughs> I think I think in parallel to the way that England have had a bit of a renaissance in the Southgate, and let's remember that Southgate was not sort of predetermined to take this job. It, he got it because Sam Allardyce couldn't <laughs> keep his hand out of the till. Um, but Italy ended up with Mancini in charge, um, a good manager, had some things to settle it as well from his international career. I don't know if you heard this, he, he, he never quite did it for Italy. He went on a tour very early on, I think when he was like 17 year old, and he went to a tour to the US. One of the older players took him out to uh, Studio 54 in New York. <laughs> He's like a 17 year old. Yeah, came in at six in the morning. And the coach said, "Yeah, I'm not playing you again." And then he and then he got back in the fold. And in, in the early 90s, then I think he he was supposed to play. He thought he was going to play in 90, but then Scalacci came along. And then I think by by 94, he he retired from international football because he wasn't getting picked. And he, he wasn't getting starting basically. He said, "If I'm not going to start, I'm not going to bother." But wow. he he came in and, after they failed to qualify for the World Cup and has just had them on a tremendous run and they're playing unrecognisable for, for Italy, really. Just a very kind of a, you know attacking, free-flowing game. And I don't think they'll change for the final. So they, they didn't change against Spain, who are a very good team. So I think I think they'll attack. I think we'll try and control it. I think we'll try and get 
our pacey players up against their we'll, we'll try and isolate Chiellini and Benucci. I mean it sounds easier than it's than it to say than it is to do, but I think that's what they'll try and do and get runners up against the, those guys. And I, I think it could be a very open game actually. I think it could be quite entertaining. Yeah, I wonder if the tactic will be to try and you know almost try and draw draw Italy onto us, you know, and just, you know, really try and spring them on the break, you know, play. Yeah. You know, we'll have to sort of accept that, you know, there's going to be a reasonable amount of Italian possession, you know, kind of kind of in the England half. But I mean, the interesting thing was where that leaves where that leaves Kane, because he's well, you know, he's going to end up with the link up man as opposed to yeah. the as opposed to the um man in the box. I think yeah. the cup play will be very important in that, in that case. And and how how he sort of navigates playing against those two centre halves because he might have to drop off to get any joy because I can't imagine any ball being smashed up to him is gonna get <laughs> he's gonna be able to do anything with it because they'll be all over him in their front gardens as we've uh, yeah. talked about earlier. <laughs> Just yeah, get off the lawn. <laughs> so I mean Ollie. it's it's England though, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be without its drama, is it? It's not gonna be without that drama. And we've got through a podcast recording without mentioning that annoying song. <laughs> so, yeah, let's that, that continue. <laughs> Enjoy the game Sunday. Let's talk about it next week. Ollie, thanks very much. Take care.